So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, come with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you go there, we're going to walk through this, as Katie read earlier. Um, as you go there, let me give you a little bit of background since it's been a little while. Um, we're talking about <coughs> a first century church. Um, in the first century church, um, <coughs> Christians were persecuted. They faced much suffering. They, much, they faced much persecution. At any time, someone could be crucified. Uh, they could be fed to lions. They could be whipped, flogged, stoned uh, for, for the faith in Jesus Christ. If you remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter's ministering to Jewish believers that have been dispersed. They've been scattered from their home. Um, they're under intense, severe persecution um, <coughs> by, by Rome, by Nero and the people of Rome, because if you remember, um, Nero, Nero's the emperor. He has this kind of mindset like, I want to build a lot of buildings. I want to look great. So I'm going to just, I'm going to burn, I'm going to set a fire to burn the current buildings. And with the mindset, I'm going to build my own buildings. And so <clears throat> basically, Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of these buildings, even though he initiated the fires. But by blaming the Christians, it turned all the Roman citizens against all the Christians. And so the Roman citizens are going after the Christians for burning their home. And so they're under intense, intense persecution in such a way that they're running for their lives, they're homeless, and a number of things are happening. So I'm going to take this situation, and sometimes I think we just throw things like crucified or stoned, and it's like, oh, that's just what happens in the Bible. Um, there, there's, there's actually, we don't hear about it in the news, but people are actually crucified even still today. It just happens um, in different parts of the world. You can go online, you can find, are people crucified today? You'll find out people are crucified to, even today. Um, but I'm going to try to walk you in the perspective of someone um, who sees this on a first-hand level, um, a first-century first century bystander, to kind of take it in and make it look, and not make it look, to see, see the, the reality of this. And I'm going to drop into Acts chapter 7. Um, you don't need to read it, but you could go there. But Acts chapter 7 is a story where Stephen was stoned to death. And we're going to go and look at this as a bystander or outside perspective. We know the Romans rushed Stephen out of the city, and they stoned him. Literally, one or two verses are used to describe this. But kind of take this in on a very personal perspective. Um, you're not Stephen, but you're watching this. You see a group of, what, people rushing Stephen. So just imagine a bunch of people. It doesn't say how many, but they rush him to the point, what? Stephen is forced out of the city, and so you see all this go down, like, you know, you're not the kind of person, I'm just going to jump in the middle and kind of, hey, stop, you know, stop rushing Stephen, because what? You're fearful of getting stoned yourself, so you're just watching this go down. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit in a very tiny way. In junior high, we didn't stop people from fighting each other. We watched it because we thought it was a form of entertainment as they, I don't know, junior high, they enact wrestling they see on TV and they do the same thing to each other. We just watch people fight. We don't actually stop the fight. I don't know. I, that's who I, that's the kind of kid I was. I didn't stop people from fighting. I just thought, oh gosh, he got socked in the face. Oh gosh, he flipped him on the cement. I just watched. And so this, 
this person is not like your classmate. This is someone you know. Stephen is a friend of yours. Stephen may be uh, your friend's relative, an uncle, uh, or something like that. This is someone close to you. And so you see this go down, and you see stoning. I don't know what you think of when you think of stoning. Like, you think he's on the ground and they're rolling a big boulder and it's going to flatten him like a cartoon? No. I, I, I picture this. Um, people getting a whole bunch of rocks, one at a time, pelting him, pelting him, pelting him, pelting him to the point that it hits his head. He goes unconscious. They keep throwing more and more rocks to the point, what? He dies. The only way I could imagine this is when I was a kid, uh, all these little silly stories I'm going to share, um, there was a three-foot snake in our backyard. And so my brother and I, we go, ah, snake! And so we all get rocks, and we just throw rocks constantly until it dies. All right? So this is a human being hitting rocks. I mean, sometimes we hear about baseballs hitting people on the head and they die. Well, kind of the same idea. This is tragic. It's terrible. And so this is someone you know. It's a, maybe a friend of a friend. It, it's personal. And so this is this one way... <clears throat> It goes down. So there's stress. There's anxiety. You're wondering, man, am I going to be stoned next? And then you may have like an uncle who was crucified. He went on the cross, and he didn't die in, the, in a couple of days like Jesus. Some, some people would stay on the cross for multiple days. And their, their whole system, their guts and digestive system goes out. And so they let all their stuff out of their backside. And you, you just know that's your uncle on that cross. And you, you're scared for your life because that could be you too. And so you're wondering, you know, you have another relative or friend that's being persecuted, and they've been what? They've been whipped. You know, some, it's not always 40 minus 1. Sometimes they just whip you constantly. They're not counting up to 39. And they, they've whipped and opened your back. And they see what? Your back muscles. And they see your spinal, what's the most, the spinal column? The muscle, <laughs> they see your bones in there. And so you just think, this is happening. Um, to your friends, your family, and relatives. This is, this is how common it was. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that, what? You feel the stress. You're worried for your own life. You're worried for your wife. You're worried for your kids. You're worried for your friends. Because this is what? What was happening in the time and day of the first century. I don't know if we can relate to any of this as American Christians. Maybe some of you guys have lived in tough neighborhoods. Um, there's a time my family lived in Oakland, and we were worried for our life at times. We would see shootings. We would see bullet holes in our house. We would see dead people on our sidewalk just live it down the street. And so, yeah, we were, we were scared for our life at times. But it brought what? A certain level of anxiety and stress to our life. And so um, this is what Peter's going to address as he wraps up. Um, this book. He's going to address anxiety. He's going to sp address spiritual warfare, and he's going to address um, some key people at the end of the story. I, if you get to know me as I preach at the end of the story, every letter in the New Testament, I get excited about the last few people they talk about, because most people just read through that last few people, and it's like, who are they? Who cares? But those people are all often key strategic people in the gospel, so we'll look at those people. But for this morning, I'm going to hit briefly, in the sake of time, eight facets to actively fight and to live out the gospel. Many times we're down. Many times I like these cool movies when the, the good guy is down. He looks like he's beating. The bad guys are going to win. Um, it's one sense we, we just give up. But 
are, in, in the movies, what typically we see that the good guys, they fight. They continue to fight to the end. And I think this is in one sense what Peter wants, to actively fight to the very end, to live out the gospel. And so the eight facets are as followed. Here comes all your fight words, all right? So children, facet number one, fight with Jesus. Facet number two, fight with sober-mindedness. Facet number three, fight with watchfulness. Facet number four, fight with resistance. Facet number five is fight with an eternal hope. Facet number six is fight with doxological focus. That's hard to say. Facet number seven is fight with faithful family. And then lastly, facet number eight, fight with brotherly love. So I'm going to pick up the pace. I just want to remind you in the face of persecution, Peter didn't say, you know, go watch a lot of TV. He didn't say go for a drink. He pointed his audience to the gospel and the implications of the gospel. So in the midst of persecution, he reminds them what? As they have lost their house, that you have an eternal hope. You've been born again to eternal hope. That's important because they've lost their house. And if you have an eternal hope, guess what? You have a future home one day. Um, they feel like that they're lost or insignificant, not, not important. Peter reminds them, I believe in chapter 2, that you're a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. And then Peter walks through a number of situations, chapter four, 3 and 4. How are you to live in such an oppressive situation, possibly in relationship to government and family? He calls, he calls all of them to what? Humbly submit their lives to the Lord in every situation, every sphere of life. And so here we're talking about more particular area of how we deal with anxiety. And so I, I see the anxiety the first century church is very stressful. I don't know if we can relate to the anxiety, but maybe to some level we've experienced stress um, in our life. And I don't want to minimize the stress and anxiety you face. So I'm going to say, hey, we, we face stress. Um, in this life, <clears throat> it just comes in different packages. So the first facet is fight with Jesus. This is found in verse um, 7. For followers of Christ, many times we, we will feel stress and anxiety. And there are a number of options to deal with our anxiety and stress. And the main option that Jesus said, that Peter says right here, and I need to think of real quickly Peter's life. He faced a lot of stress as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Am I following him correctly? Am I going to put my foot in my mouth again? Am I going to cut, you know, a soldier's ear off for no good reason because I panicked? Am I going to deny Jesus Christ three times? He, he had a lot of stress. Um, but he, he's one who's been through this, and he gives advice from experience and through the prompting of the Holy Spirit in verse 7. Simply, when you experience anxiety, he says, cast all your anxiety on him, on Jesus Christ. So he doesn't say some or a little bit. He says, cast all your anxiety, past, present, and even future worries and concerns on him, on Jesus Christ, who cares for you. It says in this passage, because he cares for you. So I want you to know that Jesus Christ cares for you deeply. In the midst of your suffering and hardship and trials and persecution, no matter how long it is, whether it's a week, a month, a year, or several years, Jesus cares for you. And because he cares for you, you have every reason that you can cast your anxieties upon him who cares for you. The, the Greek word for casting, um, I believe it's on the screen, it, it defines it in this, in this particular way, is to throw something else on something else or 
someone else. And so in Luke chapter 19, verse 35, it's used in the idea as to throw a blanket on a donkey. And so in our case, as believers, when we feel anxious and we're worried, you could do a couple of things. A lot of times when we're anxious, a number of things can happen to us, and I can't even cover them all. When you're worried and anxious, you could be stressed and you could have more zits. You could be worried and anxious and you have bad digestion. You could be worried and anxious a lot. You get skin problems. You get rashes. When you're worried and anxious, sometimes what do we do? We take it out on people around us. You feel anxious and you just take it out on your husband because he's right there. Or you take it out on your sibling because he or she is right there because we're worried and anxious. And so sometimes we just put it out on other people. And the Lord, Peter's advice is very clear. It's not even advice. He's literally giving us a command. Cast your anxiety upon Jesus Christ who cares for us. And so all your worries, all your concerns, release them, pray, just give them to the Lord. <clears throat> and do it once and for all. Just give it to him. Entrust your worries and cares to a sovereign God who cares deeply for you. And so that's the first facet. The second facet is, and I call this fight with Jesus, because you can fight with yourself. Um, you can run to a number of things, but fight with Jesus. Struggle with him. Trust him with your worries and concerns. Go to him. Facet number two is fight with sober-mindedness. Um, <clears throat> when, suffering, when suffering is painful and it persists for a long time, and it can look in a different way, in a lot of different ways. Um, I, I had chronic pain for a long time. My kids remember this. I had chronic back and neck pain. I was just in agony all the time. My doctor gave me codeine. <laughs> you know, codeine is what? It's basically the same stuff you make crack out of. All right? And this, this codeine did nothing for me. I just felt the pain, and it just didn't work. And so, <laughs> so... I had persistent pain constantly. I literally just crawled into a ball. But if I, I were to talk about it, literally, I, there's times I just wanted to lash out and do something dumb and something impulsive to deal with this, the pain and discomfort I was feeling. And so there's, in trials and tribulations, Peter's specific advice and command for his audience today is to be what? sober minded. He says to be sober-minded. In other words, we are to think biblically. When the heat is on, he, he basically is saying, all the more be free of external intoxicants or toxications like drugs, like alcohol that would impair your mind. He's exhorting us to have the mind of Christ, to think biblically, to think spiritually when things are heated, when things are hard. It's easy to flip out and respond sinfully when, especially when your trials have persisted a long time. Facet number three is fight with watchfulness. Okay, <clears throat> fight with watchful, watchfulness. As, as Christians, I want you to know the day you turned your life to Jesus Christ, in one sense, prior to coming to Christ, you were dead in sin, but also you are a follower of the Prince of the Air. In Ephesians chapter 2, in one sense, you're a follower of Satan. But once you gave your life to Jesus Christ, now Satan becomes what? Your enemy. And the Bible says basically we have three public enemies. Enemy number one is Satan and his demons. Enemy number two is the world system, this fallen system that's bent toward um, ungodliness. 
And enemy number three is our own flesh or our sin nature. Some people call this, this is our, our body, our flesh that is, has indwelt sin, that's bent towards being sinful. So you need to know we have these three enemies, and all three of these enemies exist to turn our attentions away from Jesus, to distract us, to <clears throat> not trust Jesus in, in a number of ways. And so Peter basically gives an imperative command to be watchful, to be watchful, to be aware of what Satan is doing, what this world is doing, and we, what our flesh is tempting us toward. Um, and so he says to be watchful, to be alert, to be vigilant. And so what does this mean? Is to understand that there's evil forces going on constantly, and they're coming at you as Christians, um, directed at you. And so Peter basically is saying is saying to stay alert, to be and to own the posture of a soldier, to stay on guard, to be watchful at all times. Why? Because there's an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a lion seeking to devour you. There's a, <coughs> the Satan wants to function and act like a lion, and his goal is to devour you. And I, I can't, I just want to step back and I think of Christians in this past 18 months, I definitely seen different types of Christians. A lot of them have stepped up and their faith has deepened in prayer and in what they believe in God's word. But also I think I think of Christians, I think some of them have been devoured big time. Um, they're checking out on their faith. They stop trusting in Jesus. They don't go to church anymore. There's a, a devouring that's happening. And so as Peter is describing this picture of what uh, a lion is like, he, he uses a very solid picture that the devil is an adversary. We have an adversary that is against us. Um, in the Greek, it speaks of a, a legal opponent. The, the de devil, Satan, he, he is basically going before Jesus Christ the throne, and he's, he's throwing slanders and lies, constantly telling you and Jesus that you are not worthy. You are not good. You are not anything. is just constantly laying these um, unbiblical truths at you to cause you to doubt your salvation, cause you to doubt God's um, provision in your life. And so, so he puts this out there. So the devil is basically a slanderer. He, he wants to malign um, believers and, and your, in your thinking, in your character. And I want you to know really clearly, uh, the devil is not this character um, that you see on October 31st that runs around with a little pitchfork. Okay, that's just what we think because we see these costumes and little kids doing this, you know, literally, I don't know, 27 days from now. All right, that's not the devil. That's this, I don't even know what that is. All right, the devil is someone that's directed at you. He's been at this for a long time since the garden. He's an expert at, deceive, at deception, at lying, and slandering. And so I want you to know we don't have the enemy that you have is not just like, you know, this is minor inconvenience. He's constantly going after your weaknesses, and he knows your weaknesses. And if you think about it, he knows your weakness. He'll tempt you in those areas over and over and over. And you might be giving into it, or that's an area of your life that you're constantly struggling with. If it's lust, it's lust. If it's, you know, indulging in something else. If it's 
whatever, a belief system that you just can't break out of. Um, he constantly will target you in those areas. And he targets you in other areas. Satan has, and, the, and he has an agenda to, set, to, to sow discord in the life of the church between men and men, women and women, church leaders and church members. His goal is to take little things and cause major discord in the life of the church. Um, in believers, he wants us to, he, Satan has a goal to cause us to doubt God's love, his grace, his mercy, his truth. He constantly wants to do that in our lives. He wants, Satan wants to sow dissatisfaction in your heart and discontentment in your heart. To the point what? It works in churches that you, he causes this discompassion, and then you start fighting each other. Um, it happens more often than I, I care to elaborate on, but it, we see it all the time. And so, Satan also has this goal to... <clears throat> so, so, well, maybe the last little footnote. There are times in First Timothy, even in Job life, that God just says, Hey, go ahead, Satan. Have at this person. He's mine, but I want you to go ahead and test him in, in that particular way. And so you see examples like that. But know this, Satan is like a roaring lion, and his goal and aim is to devour you. And I don't know what you think of a lion in terms of lions. I don't know how much experience. Maybe you see lions on National Geographic, and you see a lion, what circle its prey. But I want you to know they're vicious hunters. Peter didn't, the apostle Peter didn't grow up, you know, going to a zoo and think, oh, that's a lion. Or he didn't grow up and think, oh, watching Lion King 1, 2, and maybe 2 and a half or whatever they have out there. No, that's not his idea. Peter's mindset or thinking of a lion in his days were particularly lions that were thrown in arenas. They would grab Christians and, and their kids. It could be your baby, your infant, your, your teenager, <coughs> your elementary school age and they would throw them in these arenas, arenas, and they would chase you down. They'll bite you in the head. They'll bite you in the heart. And that's what lions did. And I believe that's what Peter was thinking. He's going to go. These lions are going to go out, <clears throat> and they, they're like the devil. And their whole goal is what? To devour you, to literally eat you like a piece of meat. Moving on. There's a couple areas. I won't touch in this long just for the sake of time, but... In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 to 17, I mean, chapter, chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, in the husband-wife intimacy relationship, this is an area in verse 5 that Satan may cause damage and destruction. And so you, you see in this passage, you could read it on your own, but for husband-wife, you could think about this. So that's 1 Corinthians 7, 5, 3 through 5. Also, we also know the world is attacking us in 1 John chapters one, chapter 2, verses 5 to 17. This is worth it because it applies to all of us. Um, John says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Pretty straightforward there. And all that is in the world, desires of the flesh and desires of of the eye and the boastful pride of life, <clears throat> excuse me, is not from the Father, but from the world. Verse 17, all the world is is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so that's 
Point number three, we have an adversary, the devil, who wants to eat you like a piece of sandwich, um, a piece of meat. Um, <coughs> facet number four, um, fight with resistance. Verse, verse nine, um, I constantly say we have to actively fight. Okay, if you go passive, you're dead. Okay, pass. <coughs> and so the command here in verse nine, Peter says to resist him. Resist who? Resist the devil. And he says, resist him, firm in your faith, um, firm in what the scripture says, firm in the gospel. Um, this is where, this is why at this church that we plead with you to have a regular time in God's word, that you would be praying, that you'd be in small groups, that you'd be grounded in, your tr- in the truth of God's word. And so when temptation comes, you would resist him Firm your faith. And there's a lot to be said, I think, in terms of how to resist him. Understand the strategies of Satan. Um, he has an agenda, t- and he knows how to go after you. And so you've got to think, if this is my weakness, what do I need to do proactively to deal with fill in the blank? Um, in, in our family, some of our proactiveness with our, our, our phones is that we, we block um, the inappropriate sites. And that's just one way we try to get proactive on that. And so you know your weaknesses. I, I encourage you to fortify them with truth that would also <coughs> correspond to your area of weakness. So again, verse 9, resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What we are facing and what we're experiencing is common to man. Whether we're talking about this generation or generations past, um, Peter makes it really clear that what you're going through is common to man. And so um, he's giving sound advice for every generation to resist him, not give in to him. Um, I want to give one verse here in, in 2 Peter chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. We see this kind of amplified a little broader. It's for, it says, Paul says here, for though we walk in the flesh, in the human body that's bent towards sin, we are not waging war according to the flesh, verse 4, for the weapons, for the weapons of our warfare is not of the flesh, listen carefully, but of the divine power to destroy strongholds. So I want you to make it crystal clear here and in Ephesians chapter 6. Our battle is not against the flesh. It's not against each other. But there are divine... <coughs> but, there, but there's a divine power. God has given this power to destroy these strongholds. What are these strongholds? In verse 5, we destroy arguments or in other translations in NASB it says speculations and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I want you to underscore and highlight this truth, that, God, that our role as believers is to destroy arguments and lofty opinions against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obedience, to, to obey Christ. Be ready to be punished, to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Uh, I want to focus here on this term, um, destroy arguments, or in the NSB I said, speculations. I'm going to give you a quick definition. 
Um, this morning, um, your leadership team, we met, and this is one area we focus on. As pastors, what's our role? We're not just here just to teach the Word and shepherd, but we have a unique role to highlight particular area in our day and generation that are unique things our society and the world is attacking us. And so what are these speculations or arguments? John MacArthur defines it in this way. They are satanic ideologies. Some of us are raised up in satanic ideology, and that's our culture and upbringing. We've got to identify these things and eliminate them. Ideas, theories, religious philosophies, and systems of thoughts that raise up against the knowledge of God. Every theory that's contrary to God's word, we need to call them out for what it is. Every idea or belief that's contrary to God's word, we need to call them out. And so we do, unapologetically. Um, Going on in this definition, that, that is... That, excuse me, that is that are anti-biblical viewpoints that have people captive as if they are prisoned in great fortresses. There are people who are, are, are imprisoned in lies. They, they believe the lie. They don't know anything else. And the Word of God is exposing things so that people could come out and see the light. Christians cannot mash those ideas with human ingenuity, but only with biblical truth. Every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. Only when someone has the mind of Christ on a matter is he or she rescued from such ideas or such false believing. So, hence, I want you to know, strategically, we're trying to go directly to some of the key areas of the Christian faith to strengthen your faith so that we can fight this good fight together, hence the book of Ephesians. It is a big deal to understand everything in this book. Come January, I want to go through Romans, I mean, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. These are foundational core doctrines that we got we to gotta, we gotta boil down to, okay? In Genesis, the idea of evolution is no, is no, it's not there. God made this world and everything in it. There's no room for evolution. And we'll get to that. And we'll explain it in greater detail from a biblical perspective. And I'll try to bring some science into the mix too. So that's facet number four. Um, resist. Fight with resistance. Number six, or number five. Fight with the eternal hope. Guess what? As trials persist, as tribulation goes on, it's easy to lose hope. God, are you there? You know, um, are, are you going to help? Are you going to come through? And so we're, we ask those questions. So did Habakkuk. And so, so does Peter. In first, first Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says this, after, And after you have suffered a little while, he's calling what they're experiencing a little while. We don't know how long it will be in the first century. We don't know how long we're going to suffer today. But he's saying it's a little while, whatever it is. It could be your whole lifetime, if you consider Job's life. It was like pretty much 99% of his life. But he says this in relationship to suffering. Peter is fascinating. He always points not just to the gospel, but to the future hope that we have. And he says this, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. Basically, Peter is saying, hey, as you're going through all this, understand God of all grace, I believe past, present, and future. We do believe in the doctrine of election because it's in the scripture. We do believe that God is working in your life now. And we do believe that one day he will call you home. Um, If there's no sense that God will call you home and there's no hope, man, just give up. Throw in the towel. Forget this Christian life. Give in to sin, right? But eat, drink, and be married. But because God is working in the past, present, and future, we have every reason to fight the good fight. We have every reason to press on. Because what? We have hope in every divine resource to fight the good fight here. And the cool thing God, Peter gives us four words to talk about what he's doing here and now. We call this sanctification. It's this process of giving you sanctifying grace in the here and now as you struggle with whatever you're facing with. He, he wants to restore you. He wants to perfect you. He wants to mature you, to take your brokenness and make you more whole in Christ. He wants to confirm, to, to help you, to set you fast. Um, he wants to strengthen you, to make you sturdy. Um, He wants to establish you, to lay a foundation in you. These are important things. When the wind blows and the storms come, are you going to be established in Christ? Um, You'll know because if you're not, you're going to be rocked to and fro. And some people will be what? Rocked so back and forth that they just crumble. And they're on the sidelines or they're not walking with the Lord anymore. They're not in fellowship anymore. And so that's number five. Number six, fight with doxological focus. So as Peter's laying out this, he's been giving command after command after command, and now he says, I'm done with my commands, and he's, he takes a deep breath in a sense, and he goes to verse 11, and Peter says, to him, to Jesus Christ, be the dominion forever and ever, amen. And so this is a little short doxology, and Peter's attention to for himself and for his audience and for us today, is to remind us of what? God, the Lord God has dominion and rule over all. What we're facing today, what they faced back then, and what we might face in the future, the Lord is Lord over all. Your sickness, your trials, the pandemics, racial tension, politics, and who the president is today, who the governor of California may be, all these different things, um, whether you have a, a leader in your country that's a dictator, um, he is Lord of all. Um, he <clears throat> is the Lord. And so the idea of um, dominion in the Greek speaks of, signifies the Lord's strength um, to rule and reign over the entire universe. And so as Peter isn't giving a command here, but he wants us what? to trust in the Lord. He points us to the one that is worthy to be trusted, to run to, to look to, to follow after, to resist, in one sense, to resist the devil and find our hope in God himself in any trial and temptation we might find. Facet number seven, we have a couple more. Facet number seven is fight with family, faithful family. I love this one. In, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says, By Salvanius, a faithful brother, as I regard, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this 
is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So we know who Salvanius is. Um, he also goes by a shorter name of Silas. Silas what, traveled with Paul um, in his ministries in many places. He's also known as a prophet in Acts 15. He was considered a Roman citizen in Acts 16. Um, we also understand that he apparently was a ro- one who wrote down Peter's words. And also he delivered this letter. But the thing that stands out to me the most in this season of persecution, that Peter regards Salvanius as what? A faithful friend who stood with him. He was a model of fidelity to the gospel. He didn't check out. He didn't abandon the gospel when things got hard. He didn't run away. He remained what? A faithful friend in the trenches. Man, I so need faithful friends in the trenches. You need faithful friends um, in the trenches of life. (laughs) We all need this type of friend that will stick with us in the thick of thin. Do we not? We need friends that will be faithful, not say, hey, it's getting a little hard. I'm going to hit the jack button and just, you know, leave. No, these are faithful friends um, that stick there through the thick and thin. Well, and, and what Peter is saying to, the, to his audience and us today, that we can trust in God and his word, and we can what? Stand firm in it. We can be super confident in God and his scriptures. Lastly, fight, fight with brotherly love. First um, Peter chapter 5, 13 and 14. It says in verse 13, She who is at Babylon, this refers to a church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting. So another church understands, hey, you're going through a hard time, and they send greetings. They send encouragement to people that Peter is ministering to. Hey, I want you to know, like, when you think of other churches, we're not in competition. There are a lot of solid Bible-believing churches in this area, and many of them serve different people, just like Costco serves a type of people, and so does Trader Joe's, and so does your mom and pop shop. Churches serve different type of people. But I want to be friends um, <clears throat> with all kinds of churches, especially lo- that treasure Jesus and value and holds the gospel high. And so I'm in a couple of different groups. In the Southern Baptist world, I relate to a lot of different people. I'm a part of Carolina Movement. I want you to know these people. We try to bring them in, and, and I want to do more of this. But we, we actively support each other um, financially, through prayer, um, <clears throat> through counsel. Pastors go through a hard time. We try to support each other in the trenches. Um, so many of them send greetings to you. Um, I send greetings to them. We'll speak at each other's churches. These relationships are strategic because we want, in one sense, the tr- we don't want to know, we don't, want, we don't want to be a church that's saying, hey, that's our enemy church and that's our energy. We want to understand in the triangle that we can say, hey, we are churches together, serving the city together. So there are opportunities down the road that we had initiatives that died with COVID, but we want to do things together to bless this city. And so expect those things to come back as COVID does whatever. Who knows what it's going to do? Or who knows if there's another pandemic? I don't know. I just don't know, but we just roll with everything. Um, but it, it's fascinating to see the camaraderie amongst churches. Um, I get to meet pastors that are black, Mexican, from mega churches, from smaller churches. 
And even a guy just randomly came up to me and said, my pastor prayed for your son at church. I'm like, wow, I didn't even know you're praying for your son, my son at church. But I, I'm thankful for that. And then last, last little ditty here, two little ditties. Um, Peter refers to Mark, and he refers to him as a son. Not his biological son, but a spiritual son. And he also sends greeting and <coughs> greetings to this church. And this is Mark, um, John Mark, who what? had a sharp disagreement with who? Paul, and they went two different ways. We see that Mark is restored, he's made useful, and for Peter, this is his spiritual son, and he commends him too. And then lastly, in verse 14, we see that they greet one another with a kiss of love, okay? Um, in that culture, um, particularly men to men and women to women appropriately gave a kiss of love from to, to, to cheek to cheek. This is not French kissing. This is not lip kissing, all right? This is an appropriate cultural kiss. The equivalent today could be a kiss in some churches that, that express affection that way, but today would be in a hug, a handshake, a warm embrace, that kind of thing. But I want you to see that they had an affection for each other, and they expressed it on a physical, I'll say appropriate level. And so that, there's a place for that in the life of the church. I mean, <clears throat> it says that the church cares for each other and loves each other <clears throat> in, a, in a practical way that, in that way. And then lastly, Peter leaves this last statement, peace to all who are in Christ. He wants God's peace, the rule and reign to be experienced in your heart as you relate to one another in the midst of what? The suffering and the trials you may face. He wants the church to come together to have this amazing affection for each other and peace. Um, I'm going to give you three applications, and we're not going to have discussion, but we'll close in music. Rooted Church, I, I want you to see over and over how important these truths are, how important it is to be rooted in the gospel, how under, to understand that we're in an all-out war daily. And there's this line that wants to, what, eat you up and devour you. And so, my friends, let's walk together. Let's be in these trenches together, and let's fight the good fight uh, together. Next week, we get to um, do something special. We are going to celebrate God's kindness and graciousness to Rooted Church and celebrate our second anniversary of Rooted Church. And there's a number of things that are happening. Um, Kelsey's last day is here as an intern. She's been laboring faithfully amongst us. She, she's going to bless us, and we're going to bless her. Lord willing, we're going to present Daniel as a new intern here. Um, so that's happening, too. We're excited about that. Rebecca here, she has given her life to Christ. Her life has changed big time, and she's going to share her testimony. And so we're going to celebrate that. We're going to eat. Uh, we're going to pig out. I encourage you to invite, invite friends as we celebrate together um, next week. Um, I have a friend of mine I knew back in seminary. He's gonna, he planted a church 20 years ago. He's going to share a little bit. So he's going to do an eight-minute sermon. I'm going to do an eight-minute sermon. So a lot of little things next week, but a lot of fun. Um, so that's next week. Lastly, some of you may not know the hope of glory. Some of this, like this whole message is strange. What are you fighting about? And why are we fighting about? 
And I just want to leave you with this. I understand if you would just stop and pause and you look in your life. We see brokenness. You see brokenness in your own life. You see brokenness in this world. And this, was God, this wasn't God's beginning plan. This wasn't his initial plan. God set up the world that it would be under his rule and reign, under his design. And if you see brokenness in your life, you're basically just seeing the effects of sin. And what God did is he did what? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, that he might redeem you and restore you and address his brokenness. And if you place your faith and trust Jesus Christ, he will work this story to one, save you, rescue you, redeem you, and to bring um, restoration in your life. And that's what we're all about, the gospel for all people, for all nations, and to be a gospel-centered church. Let's pray, folks. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for this word. God, we pray that it would run and do an amazing, effective, powerful, transforming work in our lives. And in this church, and other churches here, and we look forward to celebrating together next week of what you have done, are doing, and we trust that you will continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.